My name's Kate, if we haven't met before. There's some people here I don't know. And um, I've lived sort of kind of equal parts of my life um, in New Zealand, England, and Australia. So if you're like, what is that accent? I don't know. <laughs> like, you could help me figure it out, I don't know. So um, today I'm going to be talking about the word became flesh. And uh, yeah, just exciting. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning, Wes. What a wonderful time. Just great to declare the power in the name of Jesus. And um, so we're going to be looking at more of that today. So um, if you got four movie directors in a room and you, you gave them a brief and you said, here are the facts, here's the story, I want you all to go away and uh, make a movie about this, they, they would do that. They'd all go away and they'd tell the same story, but you'd get four different movies, wouldn't you? Completely different movies. And that's kind of what happens with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, they all tell the story of Jesus, but they all approach that story in a slightly different way. So the Gospel of Matthew begins with Jesus' family tree all the way back to Abraham. The Gospel of Mark, he dispenses with the, with the backstory and he goes straight to the opening action sequence, doesn't he, of John the Baptist in the wilderness. And then uh, the Gospel of Luke begins with the Christmas story. So he's, you know, the angel coming to Mary, the journey to Bethlehem. Um, baby in the manger, shepherds and angels, the, the images of like a million Christmas cards. Um, they're all great openings, aren't they, to a powerful story. But the Gospel of John is completely different to all the others. And it was written about 30 years after the other three, actually. And um, for 60 years, John had been preaching all that he'd seen firsthand of Jesus and then just before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote down the book of Revelation, he decided that he was going to write down all his memories, all the things that had happened. And he almost certainly had copies of those other Gospels, so he didn't need to like replicate all that was in those. Instead, he's giving us the big picture of who Jesus is in the context of eternity, creation, the universe, and the purposes of God. And he tells us very clearly his agenda in chapter 20. Like the literal translation for the Greek is, I'm telling you this so that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by going on believing, you may go on having life in his name. Now this is good for us in a series called Believe, right? And so John begins with this extraordinary series of statements about who Jesus is. And I wonder, could we read these together? Yeah, I've tried to do, oh, what's happened to my font? Oh, I did really big letters so that you'd have to, <laughs> it's changed, oh no. Um, okay, can you see that? Can you read it? You can put it all up at once, Gil, if you want. If it will, yeah, there we go. Here we go, let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, these are big Big statements, aren't they? We're in no doubt that John is saying, as Mike told us last week, come and see Jesus, this man who walked among us, is God. 
Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that we've already declared your name this morning, Lord God, that there's power in your name. And I pray, God, you'd reveal yourself afresh to us this morning the authority in you, that you are the one who has come to us fully God, fully man. Lord, I pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see you afresh and open the eyes, Lord, of anyone who is watching this who doesn't yet know you. Lord, I pray uh, for the glory of your name. Amen. So the word became flesh. Now, John was deliberately using this term, the word, to get the attention of everybody, like Jews and Gentiles alike. So back then, you know, calling Jesus the word, it would have been attention-grabbing, but saying the word became flesh was like lobbing a cultural hand grenade, really. So, because for the Gentiles, the concept of the word, which in Greek is like logos, um, was something that had been around in Greek philosophy for centuries. Okay, it was um, they just used that to describe um, the divine force of reason, knowledge, moral behavior that governed the universe. It was like the ancient Greek equivalent of saying, "May the force be with you." It was like, like literally, it was like they thought of it like force. So they were really comfortable with this idea of the word logos, the force. But what would have been a shock factor for them would have been what do you mean the force is a person okay and for the Jews they would have been similarly comfortable with the concept of the word you know in the old testament the terms the word or words of Yahweh is used 259 times you know for example Genesis 1 and God said let there be light and there was light Psalm 33 by the word of the Lord the heavens were made Psalm 107 he sent forth his word and healed them so to the Jewish people the God of Israel is a God who speaks Peter Lewis says God's speech is his activity but again, the surprise here for them would have, made, would have been, what do you mean the word is a person? Okay, different cultures, same shock factor. So the, to the Jewish people especially, John, he's making his case. The Messiah has come. You know, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the one you've been waiting for, he's here. And he's waving big flags at them uh, that they would recognize. For example... He begins with, in the beginning was the word. That's an obvious reference to Genesis 1, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They would have recognized that, but he's saying straight out, Jesus has always existed. And then in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the Greek literally translates as, he came and pitched his tent among us. Okay, John's waving a flag at the book of Exodus where God gives instructions to make the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And verse 14 continues, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Again, in Exodus 40, we read about the glory of the Lord, don't we? You know, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. And before that, in Exodus 33, Moses says to the Lord, now show me your glory. 
And God says that he will, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see the face of God and live. So John's referencing all of these things that they would have recognized, but he's trying to show them the old has gone, the new has come. And he's saying we have seen his glory, we have seen the face of God in Jesus. So back then, everyone in the community could see the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. I mean, how could you miss it? Everyone could see it. But now, not everyone recognizes the glory of Jesus because we see Jesus in his true identity through the eyes of faith. So even in um, Jesus' own followers, we see there were, there were wobbly moments when there were moments of doubt. You know, we, John the Baptist, he begins, doesn't he, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later, when he's in prison, he's like, um, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? You know, it's tragic. <laughs> you know, we see the one we call Doubting Thomas, don't we? Like, it's only when he sees the risen Jesus and the scars in his hands that he says, My Lord and my God. And, um, and Judas, I mean, I don't think um, he can ever really have believed Jesus was God because who would sell out God for a few coins? You know, if that's who you thought he was, who would do that? So John 1, 10 to 11, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And we can think of occasions when, when Jesus was explicit about his identity. And the Jewish people were like incensed, weren't they, with offense um, because they thought he was speaking blasphemy. You know, you remember um, Luke 4, he goes into the synagogue, doesn't he? And he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And they want to throw him over a cliff, don't they? And then in uh, Luke 8, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And they try and stone him. You know, like this, it's... It's a reaction, okay? So um, C.S. Lewis made the famous comment in Mere Christianity um, that by the things Jesus said, he was either God, as he claimed to be, or he was as mad as a man who thought he was a fried egg. And clearly, the people he was offending went for the fried egg option. Um, they thought he must have been mad. But I guess it's easier to try and silence what you don't understand. Because your only options are to silence it and make it go away or to accept it and change your whole worldview and your whole life. Which is exactly what Jesus requires of us if we follow him. Of course, it is confronting to come to terms with a man who grew up in your neighborhood, started off as a tradie, and then began to do more and more remarkable things until he finally declared that he was God. I get that that's confronting. <laughs> but it is a long list of remarkable things. Turning water into wine, feeding thousands of people with meager supplies, uh, healing people, calming storms with a word, casting out demons, raising the dead, then dying on a cross and appearing alive three days later. There's a lot 
of evidence that this is no ordinary man. But how do we understand that Jesus is fully man and fully God at one and the same time? We fully accept the baby in the manger is God with us, Emmanuel. Like we celebrate that every Christmas. But have we considered all the implications? And we're going to need to do a bit of brain stretching. Is that okay? Is that all right? And I've put, I have put a lot of stuff up on the screen because I need to see things to digest them. Like I can't just hear it. And so I really hope um, these are clear. I hope you can see them clearly. So Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, we know this. We, we believe this. So sustaining all things, every atom, planet, galaxy, gravity, atmosphere, you know, it's one of the roles, if you like, of the Son of God. But we don't anywhere read in Scripture that Jesus is sustaining all things for all eternity apart from the 30-something years from when he was a baby to when he was the resurrected Christ. We don't get that, do we? We don't read that. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Okay? I confess this stuff has been kind of blowing my brain all week. So, like, I'll just give you a time to, you know, (laughs) similarly implode. um, Peter Lewis writes, In his divine nature, as distinct from his human nature, the Word continued to uphold all things, filling the universe with his infinite and omnipotent presence as God. This did not change at the incarnation. He who continued to fill all things and to sustain all things also became contained in a virgin's womb and was sustained by a living mother, living simultaneously the massive life of the Godhead and the creaturely life of humanity. Now, in my copy of this book, I have how written written next to it okay so I studied further and this is what Wayne Grudem says and if he says it it must be right okay so to those who ask whether Jesus when he was a baby in the manger at Bethlehem was also upholding the universe the answer must be yes Jesus was truly and fully God with all the attributes of God. Those who reject this as impossible simply have a different definition of what is possible than God has. Okay? Are you all right? Stay with me. Okay. So the key to this is in Philippians 2 which is a passage I'm sure is very precious to many of us, where we read that we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Now, some translations have, um, he emptied himself. And we might read that and think that it means that he emptied himself of 
the attributes of God, the things that make him God, being all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. And that is not unreasonable to think that because human beings aren't known for being in more than one place at a time. And because Jesus himself said there were things he didn't know. Right? For example, the day and the hour of the end times in Mark 13. So how can you be all-knowing and there be something you don't know all at the same time? So we're not the only people to scratch our heads at this. Okay, In AD 451, um, theologians gathered in a place that's now uh, Istanbul and they came up with the Chalcedonian Statement. It is a bit of a mouthful, but it is helpful because we believe it, don't we? We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yes, we, we believe that, don't we? But can we explain it? If we're with somebody in the pub, can we explain it? You know, so this helps us. And where it says men, we read men and women, please. So this is how they describe Jesus. At once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most difficult thing we have to read, okay? (laughs) All right? I know that's big, but put simply, Jesus is not two people stuck together. He's one person with two natures, one divine, one human. Each one is distinct and separate, but both are there at the same time. Now, when we look at examples, it's actually easier to grasp. And I say, thank you, Wayne Grudem and Peter Lewis for these. So I've looked all of these up, and they're all good. Okay, so in Christ's human nature, he ascended to heaven, and he's no longer in the world. Yes, we believe that. But in Christ's divine nature, Jesus is everywhere present. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Or I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, we believe both of these things. In terms of his human nature, Luke, the Gospel of Luke says he was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Yes, we believe that. In Christ's divine nature, he eternally existed. In the beginning was the word. We believe that, don't we? In terms of his human nature, he was weak, tired, and hungry. We can think of numerous examples in the Gospels where we see that. In his divine nature, he was omnipotent. Okay, we've already read Hebrews 1, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He admits to an ignorance 
ignorance characteristic of human limitedness. We could have had limitation there. But um, so that is again where he says, you know, I don't know the date and the hour, only my father knows. But he claims in his divine nature, he claims a knowledge of God which can only be divine. You know, he says no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So do you agree? We believe all of these things and we can see how they can be true alongside each other. Now, the perfect example of this, we've already listed up there in Matthew 8. You know, when Jesus and the disciples, they're in the boat, they're crossing the lake, and a furious storm comes up. And Jesus is so tired that he's sleeping in the boat. And then, you know, the disciples are terrified, and they wake him up. And and he stands up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves with the words, doesn't he? Be still, and everything is calm. And the disciples ask, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So omnipotent power, tired out after a long day. One and the same together. Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. Peter Lewis says, each of those natures retained its essential integrity. What was divine did not become less than divine, and what was human was not less than fully human. Yes? It's wonderful, hey? So Colossians 1 tells us that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So here's the thing. If Jesus was not God, he would not be able to save us. Like Jesus laying down his life for others is only effective if he is the one perfect sacrifice. If he is the mediator between God and man, the only spotless one without sin who's able to take our sin from us. Like surely only someone who is infinite God could bear the sins of the whole world. Who else could do that? Salvation comes from God alone. Now, Augustine, many centuries ago, said he emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. Thus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, not losing the form of God. The form of a servant was added. The form of God did not pass away. Yeah, that helps me in my understanding. So Jesus is the word of God and we see him with the eyes of faith. Like I love the example of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. So the centurion comes to Jesus and says, please, will you heal my sick servant uh, who's, who's at home? And um, Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replies, no, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was amazed. And he says, I haven't found anyone in Israel with faith like this. And it's almost as if Jesus is thinking, um, he understands. I am the word of God. I speak and it is done. There's power in my words. There's power in my name. And it's almost as if his reaction is, finally, 
someone who truly gets me. <laughs> someone who truly gets me. And um, this makes me think of two things. The first is, do we have faith like that? And if not, shall we ask for it? The, the centurion, when he says to Jesus, his, his logic is, I'm a man under authority. Yeah, I'm, I'm under authority and I've got soldiers under me. And when I say go, people go. And when I say come, they come. He understands how Jesus' authority works. And in the prayer meeting this morning, Anne was praying that we would know more of the authority of God, that we would understand who we are. And I confess, I haven't got time to unpack that whole thing this morning because that's a whole other message. But I do pray, God, would you give us fresh faith to take you at your word, to believe the power that is in your name, even power in your name to pray into world events as we have been this morning. We are not passive spectators. We can get involved and pray for the power of God and the authority of God in that situation. So that is the first thing, that we would have more faith and understand more of our authority in Christ. But the second thing is, if Jesus, if Jesus had come to us in all his glory, the kind of Messiah that the Jews were expecting, would we ever look at him and say, now here is a God who truly gets me? We would never respond like that, would we? But in a verse where Jesus gives us full disclosure about what is in his heart, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. Now, if you haven't read the book by Dane Ortland, do yourself a favor and go and read it today. It's wonderful. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we imagine that a holy God would be revulsed by our sin that he would recoil away from it in disgust. Because we know the things that we do and the things that we think, the things that have been done to us. We think they would revulse God. But in love, Jesus, gentle and lowly of heart, though fully God, he came as a servant. He lived our life experiences. He got tired and hungry. He knew the camaraderie of friends. He wept. He got rejected. He is the one who leans towards us, you know, even in, especially in our weakest moments, knowing that he is the only one that can take our sin away. He's the only one. And he gladly does that. Because we are the joy set before him when he was on the cross. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. 
It's the greatest, most wondrous act of God. It's even greater, surely, than creation itself. That God would come to human beings he created, give them the right to become children of God and welcome them to spend eternity with the Holy Trinity and join in their community of love. Is that amazing? Is it wonderful? Do we have a wonderful Savior? Amen.